Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to the Perfectly Imperfect podcast. Um, I'm Linda. And I'm Rose. And today we have another very special guest who I am very excited to have because it's my one and only sister. And Woo! yes, there she is. Um, we're super excited to have her on here. She is a therapist. She actually lives in D.C., so we are all Zooming right now. And um, her name is Megan. I can't remember if I already said that, but her name is Megan, very important. And I'm going to hand it off to her to tell us more about herself and what she does and why we're so excited to talk to her today. Yay. Hey, podcast world. My name is Megan. Um, like Linda said, I'm a, I'm a therapist. I work in Washington, D.C. Uh, for an awesome organization called the Went Center, W-E-N-D-T, if you want to look it up. It's so great. Um, we work with people who have experienced any kind of grief and or trauma in the Washington, D.C. area. So like Maryland, D.C., Virginia. Um, and it's the best job I've ever had. I really love it. But I'm really excited to talk to Linda and Rose. I listen to their podcast all the time. Um, every time a new episode comes out, I download it immediately and then go listen to it if I can. Um, and so I'm really excited to to talk about a little bit of what I know and then also pick their brain a little bit. Yes, I'm so excited. And I know that there's one thing that you're very excited to talk about. So you want to kick it off? Yeah, um, <laughs> definitely. I So as I've listened to y'all's podcast, one of the things that I am very, very excited to kind of hear your opinion on um, is the idea of ambiguous loss. Um, so most people when they talk about grief or loss experiences, think about death-related loss. Um, you know, someone who is dying, right? Who lived and no longer is living. Um, but when we think about grief and loss, especially for myself, for my colleagues, um, the idea of, not the idea, the, the ambiguous loss is a really, really big and present thing. Um, and so when we talk about ambiguous loss, we're talking about all of the losses, not just due to death. So this could be, um, for people right now who are, you know, with everything going on in the world with COVID, um, you know, not being able to, to graduate in person, um, the loss of being able for kids who are in school to go to school and see their teachers, um, not being able to attend a funeral, right? So there's a lot of things that people are grieving, um, specifically related to death and also um, a lot of losses that are, that are not death related as well. Yeah, that's super interesting, and um, it, I think it is super relevant for right now because a lot of people are kind of experiencing things that were totally unexpected and kind of maybe missing out is the wrong word, but they're not having experiences they wanted to have, and so like a lot of things are coming up for people, I think, like, well, they don't know how to feel because there's like a piece of their life that maybe like would have or should have happened if like this whole thing wasn't going on and now they're not experiencing that. So I think that is a really interesting point of like how do people deal with that or what does that look like? Like if nothing has ever happened like this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's this idea of change, right? So my, I was expecting this to happen and now it's not. Right. Or my my plan for life was this or the ex or I got used to things happening in this way and now they're not anymore. Um, you know, I know you guys y'all talk a lot about sports and how that how that looks. I know for me, like when I was a college athlete, um, you know, when I graduated, I was no longer a college volleyball player. And that was no longer a it, it, it was still a piece of my identity. Right. I still enjoy playing volleyball, but I was no longer a college athlete um, and I played volleyball. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as big of a, of a piece of my identity anymore. And, and framing it as a loss and understanding, okay, this is a loss. Of course, I'm angry. Of course, I'm confused. Of course, I'm sad. Um, those things through a lens of grief and loss actually make the emotions that come up for people make a lot more sense. Hmm. Yeah, I can think of like me and the similar thing is I decided to walk away from track in college and and then boxing after that, I always aligned myself with being just a competitive athlete. And then kind of walking away from that, I wish at that time I someone would have explained it to me in that way of like, this is a loss, like instead of, it kind of just felt like what's going on, you know? And so it took a long time to like understand it and which like now I can, now it makes a lot more sense and it's helpful. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
I think yeah. one of the things too is like you talked about death being a more obvious example of a loss and that's like tangible and you you know why you're having those like feelings of of loss or sadness or anger or whatever but you know not being a college athlete anymore or not being able to graduate or feeling like you um messed up in a time in your life and now you're looking back on it and wishing you would have done things differently or feeling like something's been taken away from you that you should have you quote unquote should have gotten to experience like those aren't tangible necessarily things that you can pinpoint be like that's why I'm upset and so I think it takes a while to figure out like and acknowledge that okay that that was a real experience that upset me or that made me feel like I was missing out on something that I really wanted and so I think it's a little bit harder to recognize yeah I mean I think you've touched you touched on a a couple of really important things I think one is with death there's a marker right and not that that makes it any easier right grief sucks and grief is hard um, and there's not one type of grief that is easier than any other right it all sucks it is all painful it is all awful um the one thing that makes ambiguous loss a little bit different is that there's not something, there's not always something to point to so that other people go, so that other people acknowledge your pain as real, right? And so sometimes what happens, um, you know, with COVID, for example, right, for people who, for whom um, COVID has caused a lot of anxiety or uncertainty, right, some more than others, or some express it in a way that is harder for people to understand. There are a lot of people who are experiencing things said to them, like, why can't you get out of bed this morning? I don't understand. It's it's not that hard. You're not sick, right? And so there's no, no one died. You're not sick. You should be fine. And so the expectations of other people get put on people's grief when they're, when we're dealing with ambiguous loss in a way that I think is, is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happens in death-related losses too, right? We have this magical, like, three months have passed. You should be fine. And that's not real. Um but I think kind of like you said, right, in the absence of a marker, sometimes it's it's hard for us to be able to honor our own sense of grief, right, or our own sense of loss. Um, and it makes it feel as though the things that we're missing or the things that we're grieving weren't important, and they are, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. yeah, I really like that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, totally. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, because we look for validation in, in a lot of ways with other people. So I guess it's like someone can't validate that our loss that we're experiencing is like real or if it's not what society would say, like like you just said, like you're not sick, no one's no one that you know died from COVID. Like there's still all these other things that are affecting that person and everyone handles like what goes on in their life very differently. Like, yeah, like yeah. I... I've got a couple college or not college high school seniors um, who people keep saying to them, but you're still going to graduate. And they're like, yes, I'm, I'm going to like, I will have a, a physical piece of paper that says I graduated, but I don't get to stand next to my friends. I don't get to hug my teachers goodbye. Right. There, there are some of those things that are really important. Um, or when, you know, when I didn't play college volleyball anymore, people said, but you can still run. And I was like, but I hate running a, um, and <laughs> like I'm not it's not that I miss being active of course I can physically be active but I miss my team I miss being that being part of my identity Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder what you think about um the like I'm sure there are other analogous examples to other areas of life that this might pertain to but the analogous idea of of those like virtual graduations or virtual zoom sessions or whatever like yeah. I can think of yesterday, there was a virtual graduation. It was nationwide. It was really cool to watch, but like, it's not the same. I'm not graduating from high school. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is sad. Like yeah. it made me sad. And yep. so I wonder what you think of some of those like virtual things that are trying to mimic um, in-person opportunities that are going on right now. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Y'all know, I, I hate Zoom. I hate online platforms. Um, I think that they are very important for us to engage in during this time and they're inadequate and insufficient. Um, so what I, for example, what I told a couple of my uh, clients that I work with was do, one, of, one of my clients said, do I, need, I don't even wanna go, I'm not gonna go, this sucks, it's terrible, right? And so we sat in that for a while and just talked about how awful it was and how much it sucked right? And they need to go. Um, Because 
we actually just, so we, we just wrote, my organization has put out a ton of really awesome tip sheets. So if you're like, oh, I need some help with whatever the thing is during COVID, wentcenter.org, so great. Um, but we just wrote one on rituals during COVID. And one of the things, so I helped co-write it. And one of the things that I was thinking about as we were putting it together was, are rituals around grief and loss important? Of course they are, right? They help you um, honor that the loss happened, right? They help you integrate it into a healthy, into, into, in a healthy way in your life moving forward, right? So is it helpful for me to attend a graduation ceremony? Of course it is, right? Is it sufficient? Is it the same? Is it going to give me the same level of satisfaction as my other, you know, graduation ceremony that I had previously envisioned? No, of course not. Mm-hmm. Right? Like is, is integrating the death of someone that I care about in a healthy way into my life? Is that a good thing to do? Yes. Is it the same as if the person was with me? Hell no. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think of it in the same way, Mm -hmm. like, should you, can it be beneficial for people to engage in some of those things via an online platform? Of course. Um, Is it the same? No. Is it sufficient? Probably not. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Do you feel like that can bring up a lot of like more pain too than they were expecting? Cause like, I know for me at the beginning of our semester or like this part where we are all online, I would get done with like a Zoom session for class and I would just leave and feel like worse than I did before, even though I just had like interaction for the first time that day. Yeah, you know, it's, um, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, all of my coworkers right now, we have talked about, we have collectively, we are much more tired um, because attuning to someone in a Zoom session is just, it's just different. Um, for, I, I will, I mean, I will tell you for me personally, Zoom feels exhausting. Um, being with people, I am, I used to think I was not an extrovert. I actually scale like off the charts and extroversion. And every time I'm like, no, what? I thought I was in the middle. Um, <laughs> I, um, for me, Zoom, someone sent a poem to me that it talks about how this online platform is basically, we're, we're just constantly reminded that we're actually in each other's absence, right? It, Zoom actually does not make me feel more connected. It makes me feel more lonely because it just reminds me that I'm not actually with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what the original question was, but I don't, it's not the same. No, no I'm on a And it, that kind of made me think like it almost is like Zoom is reinforcing the ambiguous loss of like in-person contact kind of, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're it missing out yeah. quote unquote on some sort of in-person contact or in-person graduation. And in some ways, yes, it's very helpful to like be able to have some form of that graduation or like friend social happy hours or whatever. But at, yeah. at some level, it's also like a reminder of, oh, I'm not actually getting to have that experience in person the well, way it like would have been. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think like, like us even doing this podcast, right? Like Mm -hmm. I was, I had a trip to Texas planned and would I rather not get to see you guys on zoom? No, of course not. Like I, I I freaking love this. Thank God zoom exists, you know? Mm -hmm. And we pushed it off however many weeks, four weeks, right? We are going to do it four weeks ago. And then we didn't because partially probably because I was like, no, I'm not like, let's just wait until we meet in person. Cause that's better. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm curious to know what, what y'all think. I think one of my main questions for y'all was how you think this relates to um, eating disorders and disordered eating, depending on, you know, how I think depending on what that experience looks like for a person, like what are some of the the ways that you could see even knowing about ambiguous loss being helpful mm-hmm. um, or normalizing, I guess, what people are experiencing? I don't even know what question to ask, but I feel like it relates and I'm curious to know what y'all think. Yeah. Rose, do you have anything? I have something, but you go first. I do. My wheels started turning on. Yeah, I thought I could um, see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like, I mean, knowing this would be very helpful, especially for people who are like, you know, I think, oh, I'm going to get all jumbled up trying to say this. But when people are going through like the recovery process, it's essentially letting go of the eating disorder that you wake up with, you go to sleep with, you know, you go throughout your day having those behaviors or feeling like you're supposed to do things in a certain way and to realize like that all has to go and you have to start picking up new things. It's like that loss of 
sometimes like you identify with that like on a very deep level like you don't want to say like yes I'm an eating disorder and you're not but you still it's like very close to you so it's like getting rid of that it's a, it can be a very empty feeling and like preparing those people for that to happen to feel like yes you're gonna feel a lot better like physically maybe even mentally but you're gonna go through a really like low time because you are losing what you've been used to for years or months or however long that was yeah yeah I didn't that was that's interesting Rose I like that yeah it's interesting thinking because I think in my mind I had thought about the loss that someone might experience when they are in the midst of Right, like if I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what the exact right phrasing is, but like the height of my disordered eating, right? Like what are some losses that I might experience then from the life that I had previous to my disordered eating behaviors? Mm-hmm. But the idea of then experiencing the loss of like the eating disorder, I mean, that I think is is huge, right? Like if we helped people realize, okay, yes, your life might be better, you know, a year from now. And still you're going to have to grieve this, this thing that you're, you know, a year from now, you might be like, Oh, I'm so glad that I am where I am now instead of where I was a year ago. And yet I miss that. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. Like if we help people understand that. Yeah. And that, so I, I was thinking sort of similar to what Megan said, like the opposite end of the spectrum. So when someone has recovered from an eating disorder, thinking about the years that they had the eating disorder and what they may have like quote unquote missed out on or you know if they if they would have not had the eating disorder what would their life have been like and what would they have been able to do with those years so it's interesting because I feel like it's almost a, a double ambiguous loss of like having to go through losing the eating disorder and then having to go through like missing out on or or feeling like you missed out on years of your life because of the eating disorder. And I think that makes sense why it's so hard for people to recover. It's yep. almost like a double ambiguous loss. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And we can triple that because <laughs> a lot of the times in recovery, you do have to give up a lot of stuff too. The stuff that like for some athletes, it's the sport that unfortunately might have been triggering for them like if it's a weight-centric sport if it's just a sport where the environment wasn't healthy sometimes in recovery like I've seen people do have to give that up in order to get better and that's the loss of like not being able another way of not being able to perform your sport if we're relating it back to sports but it could also be like maybe if your family is the one that's kind of like perpetuating the eating disorder it might be like kind of separating yourself from them, knowing that they're not healthy and that's a loss or like friends and stuff like that. Wow. So like before, during and after. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. that that just made it make sense a lot for yeah. me, like why it's so hard, you know? Yep. That was good. Yeah. I think when you when you really think about it like through this lens, it's like, of course it's hard, mm-hmm. right? Um like when I'm hearing you guys talk about it, I'm like, well duh it's hard right you know and I think I think people know that right like you kind of you carry around this like conceptual knowledge of like yes that's hard but we do the same thing that we do with death related losses right where we we see a little bit of healing and we're like oh no that person's good right like no see they eat food uh they're fine um and we forget that that's like survival it reminds you like the way that we talk about self-care right and people are like oh no, like I went for a run and like I ate my favorite meal and then I like went to bed early, right? And people at my organization are like, that's what you do to survive. That's <laughs> yeah. not Or like, right? but I took a bubble bath last night and you're yeah, like, like, nope, that's called like living, in, like that. that's living, right? <laughs> um, and I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think the same thing, I, like just hearing you guys talk, I'm like, man, of course it's hard, yeah. right? If we could normalize the conversation a little bit and be able to sit in more conversations like this and say, yeah, you're, of course it's hard, right? You just lost seven things and we're only counting one fifteenth of the loss that you've experienced. No mm-hmm. wonder. Yeah. Um, and they can be grieved together or separately and both are probably helpful. Yeah. Mm. So this reminds me of, or brings up for me like the idea of having to sit with that pain it can be really hard to like get over that loss or kind of like move on from it and so how do we how do we allow those feelings to like happen 
without like necessarily letting them overwhelm us or what do you, what are your thoughts on that? I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> um, I, okay, let me say this first. I mean, I get my first thought is like practice, right? Sitting with pain is hard. It does not get easier. Um, okay. I, I, I have thoughts in two different directions. One is like a, how do we do this personally for ourselves? And then my second thought, I think, especially, um, you know, me as a therapist, and then you guys like entering into the field and seeing some clients already. Um, how do you do this for yourself? And then how do you deal with other people? Cause I think those two things are inextricably linked inextricably. It's my new favorite word. Um, <laughs> So I think, I think personally it's, it's just hard. Um, I think I have, I have learned, I think the practice helps because you learn that you're going to be okay. I don't know that sitting with your own pain gets easier, but I think that the ability to see the light at the end of the tunnel, um, or to know that it's there when the tunnel is just full of darkness. Um, I think you learn to trust that more. Um, that's my first, that's, I think that's my one biggest thought. And then my, my other, my other thought with, um, doing this with other people, right? So if you're going to tell me something or one of my clients is going to tell me something, um, I don't think that you, I'm just, Okay, let me not sugarcoat this. You are not able to sit with someone else's pain at a greater capacity than you can sit with your own pain, right? And so if I can't, if I am sitting with a client who's talking to me about the worst trauma that they have ever experienced in their entire life, right? If I'm not capable of sitting with my own personal worst trauma that I've experienced in my entire life, I'm not going to be capable of sitting with theirs, mm. right? Um, if I have not touched like the depth of my own sorrow, anger, misery, sadness, right. I'm not going to be capable of sitting with that with someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just not possible. You cannot do it. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Like if, if my own anxiety is too uncomfortable for me, I am not going to be able to sit with someone who is incredibly anxious. Um, if there's an issue for me that I'm like, Ooh, I can't talk about that. Right. I'm not going to be able to hear someone else tell me about it. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can, I think we can, we find lots of ways to convince ourselves that we can. Um, and you can't, and it's a continual process, right? It's a lifelong process. You've never arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things it reminds me of is a conversation that I had with a therapist friend um, earlier this year she, there was a thing that had happened this year that it brought up for her some of her past experiences, right? And she had done a ton of work, right? Is probably one of the most skilled people that I have met. And it came up for her in a way this year that she was like, what? Like, it came up like that? Why? Like, I thought, like, I thought I was good. And I was like, but you were, right? And now you're, now you're experiencing a new situation in a new way at a different age with different people, right? And each of those factors, it, it doesn't mean that you weren't okay before or that you hadn't done the work or that you hadn't worked through it, right? You just, you're, you're experiencing it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, part of being able to sit with pain is understanding that it's like cultivating that curiosity, right? Of when something, when something feels a little bit some type of way to use. I don't know if people say that in Texas and DC, (laughs) we're always feeling some type of way. Um, (laughs) so when you feel some type of way, you, you just, you know, some, some curiosity about it is beneficial. Right. And it's not like, Oh my gosh, this is coming up for me. This shouldn't be coming up for me, but it's like, huh, you know, it's joy feels a little different today. How come? Right. Or anxiety feels a little different today. How come? Or like, Mm -hmm. man, my stomach's in knots. No idea what feeling that is, but like, huh, you know, let me, let me go talk to somebody about that. I like that. Yeah. I just got like 30 things in my head <laughs> at once. <And laughs> so now I just feel like I'm trying to pick it apart and I don't want to forget anything. Um, <laughs> Blurt it out, Rose. Well, it's just like, this is what happens to me of like a thousand different words get in my head and they're forming sentences. And then when it comes down to talking to them, I forget everything. Um, <laughs> So I also three minutes on our Zoom morning. Rose, oh, this is perfect. Why don't Rose, you get your sentences together? Yes. 
<laughs> and we'll meet on the other side. Throw it in the Google chat if you need to, Rose, and then you can bookmark it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was going to type it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to okay. go something in the Zoom chat. Okay, thanks. Okay. All right. Tell us all the things. <laughs> so one question is, do you think that the traumas do stick with you for your life? Like, do you think that there might be something that can trigger it for, your, for you throughout your life? Like, like your intern or like certain traumas or recoveries? Yeah. Like you're always going to be there. Um, so I, it's a, it's sort of a tricky answer, right? I mean, I think I'm going to do this stereotypical therapist thing and be like, it depends. Um, I think if the question is, will the experience always be a part of you? Then the answer is yes. Um, will the experience always be a part of you that feels negative or that feels like in some way takes away from who you are in a way that you don't like? No, of course not. Right. Um, it, it's it, it to me, I'd answer that it, it'd be like if someone asked me, like, will the person who died always be gone? Right. Yes, they will always be gone. Will you always miss them with the same level intensity that you do right now? Sometimes you will. Right. And sometimes you won't. Um, a lot of the work that we do or that I do with my clients is taking. So if you think of this is how it was described to me, and I love this analogy. Um, if you think of like a trauma or something that someone experienced or like something that happens to someone, right. As like a single thread. Um, and what we, what we kind of do is sometimes we get so focused on the single thread, right. That we forget to, to integrate or what it looks like to integrate other parts of ourself or other parts of our life. Right. And so part of the process over time is integrating other threads until what you have is this beautiful tapestry right? That is your life. Now, sometimes the like giant blue thread in the middle is going to feel like the only thread that you can see, right? And, and there might be an experience, an event, a feeling, a smell, a taste, a place, right? That, that brings that the trauma or the event or whatever the person experienced that brings it back up to you and makes it, makes you feel it with the same level of intensity. So like, I feel like I would be lying if I said that that will never happen. Um, for some people, it might not, right? So for some people, they might live for five years and there's not a trauma reminder that they experience. For some people, that might be five minutes. And for some people, they have both of those at different points. Most, I would say most people, I would argue almost everyone has that at different points in their life. Um, and so I think part of the trick is figuring out, okay, what are the triggers for me? Mm. Um, you know, it might be, like I said, it might be a, a date, a time of year, um, a place, a person, a smell, a sound, um, a, an internal sensation, right? But for that's going to be different for everyone, and it's going to shift and change over time. Um, and you might not know all of those. The likelihood, the likelihood that you know all of those is is minimal. Um, and so that I think is a is a discovery process that takes a lot of time. Uh, I like okay that actually made it seem like make a lot more sense like and you don't know that something might trigger you until you're like in it and then you're like okay I can add this to like the list of things that might yeah one of the the questions so my interns and I at the beginning of the year we ask each other a giant list of questions and one of them are what triggers like what will trigger you um, and so like I answer that question they answer that question so that we know when we're sitting in a room with clients right like we know what's going to come up and we continue to revisit that question many, many times throughout the year um, because different stuff comes up, right? And, and sometimes it's the thing that you least expected or thought, man, this is the exact opposite of what I thought would, would bring up memories of this other thing. Um, and that's okay, right? Part of the reason that, that the pandemic right now is hard for people is because there's a lot of internal triggers, right? If I have anxiety right now about something that's happening in the world, and I had anxiety during a time in my life where I experienced some kind of trauma, that anxiety in and of itself is a trigger or could be, right? Um, and so many of us are living in like a constant state of hyper arousal. And so of course, we're, of course, we're acting or behaving a little bit differently. It makes sense. Right. That's actually like interesting that you say that too, because there's like, people that I like know or like follow on social media that were recovered from an eating disorder. And now it's 
I don't want to like judge off of their pictures, but it kind of might seem like they're not so recovered anymore. And I guess it's like they could have been very stable, stable beforehand, but they've never had an experience like this before where you're just like quarantined, which would make a lot of sense why like that triggered that to come back up again. Yep. Yeah. I think your people are better able to when you this is kind of like what we were talking about before with sitting with pain right and then cultivating that curiosity if you carry some level of awareness that you don't have it all figured out and like might at some point be surprised by something that triggers you I think it makes it a lot easier to to catch it when it happens but also not to enter into like a shame spiral right as Brene Brown would say I love Brene Brown um but I think you know like if if I think that that I'm good and nothing's ever going to remind me of my past trauma, right? Then when something comes up, it's going to take me longer to acknowledge that something's coming up for me, right? And a little bit longer to to escape from the shame web that I have essentially constructed for myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, not to ignore all of the societal implications that also like play a hand in constructing that. Um, but I do think that that understanding that it might come up and it certainly will come up sometimes when I expect it and sometimes when I don't, um, I think opens us up to the possibility of, of, of healing a little bit quicker. I don't know. I hate like putting a timetable on healing as if like healing quickly is better. Um, I think it eases the pain a little bit or for sure eases the suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Like pain is inevitable suffering. We can alleviate some suffering. Right. Uh, yeah I mean that's like I guess like too personal but I can think back to like you know like I do not identify as straight and so growing up in my mom's house was like traumatic because I was hiding that and it took me like years and years and years to realize like why I'd get so mad when I'd go back home like when I was visiting like from college you know and it was just because I wasn't like allowing myself to like under like sit with the pain of like what it felt like to grow up in that house Whereas, like, now I can go back and I'm, like, fine. Because, like, I know that it might bring up something randomly or something she say she might say it might, but it's, like, easier. Yeah. And that makes so much sense, right? Like, of course you were angry, right? Like, yeah. hiding part of who you are, like, th- that is anger producing, right? Of yeah. course it is. And so, of course, when you visit us, yeah, of course, when you, like, visit us, if you couldn't see, I guess you can't see because we're on Zoom and you're not. <laughs> This is like about to punch somebody. That's what that sounded. Like. Um, but like, <laughs> it's of course it's anger producing, right? And so when you when you visit a place where your pattern was hide some of who I am, um, not be seen for who I am, right? Like of course some of those things are going to come up. That totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when they're, you know, even even when you and your mom come to a space of like her fully honoring who you are. Um, I'm sure there are things I know for me and my mom, there are things where I'm like, okay, look, I know you see me now, but like, I felt misunderstood during this time. And like, you know, and yeah. it just comes up. It's hard. It, it can't not come up. Um, right. Yeah. But like you said, we grow and we grow this beautiful, like thread. What did you say? Mosaic or something? Tapestry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, and it's because of those, like that first thread had to be there to like yeah. form it, which is cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can't ignore the thread, right? You don't get to take that thread out. Um, right. Yeah, I wish we did. <laughs> Rose, do you have another question from your millions of thoughts that you want to ask? <laughs> I do, but now I guess I guess I can still ask it because um, this was like more at the beginning what we talked about. Um, but I just wanted to know what you think might happen if there was like a practitioner or like a so therapist, dietitian, whoever that is sitting in like that room with that client who kind of dives into something that's pretty deep. Like, what do you think would happen if that practitioner hasn't like dove or delved into their own things? Like, how? Like, I feel like it could be harmful, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I mean, what what happens is you as the as the therapist get triggered and you don't realize that you're triggered, right? So right. like. Have I been triggered sitting with a client? Of course I have, right? Do I have to ground myself in the middle of sessions sometimes? Yes, I do. Um, if you meet a therapist that says that that never happens to them, I would, I might go choose another therapist. Um, 
it's like people when I when they're like my first year of teaching I was a good teacher I'm like no you weren't no one's a good teacher I was a teacher so I get to say this right but like no one's a good teacher their first year you try really hard anyway um but yeah I think what would what would happen the danger there is not recognizing that you're triggered right um or like if I'm over identifying with a client right if they're saying something and I my first thought is oh yeah this is exactly like when I experienced it right? No, it's not because they're not me, right? Like I can connect with something. I can have deep empathy for them, but my, yeah. So me being triggered and not being able to be present for my client would create an unsafe environment for them, right? Mm -hmm. So I have to do something in that space to ground myself and to, to again, become present for my client, or I might, I might not be creating or helping them create a safe environment. Um, yeah. And then if it's, I mean, if it's something that, that I share, right, then I might, you, I, I would run the risk of, of over identifying and making it like, here, let me fix you the same way that I was fixed. Right. And like, that's, that's not the point of therapy. It's not right. what it reminds me too, of like some people think, um, I don't know it, that, that brings up for me, like therapists, dietitians, like they're people too. And they'd, they've had stuff go on in their lives too. And to ignore the fact that they can't have those feelings come up is like treating them as if they're like superheroes and they're not real people that have experiences and feelings and that sort of thing. And so I like that idea of like, yes, there's like a certain level of like professionalism and work that has had to be done for you to get to that point for it to be like a, a good relationship and a good, like, um, a, profession that you are like able to be in but also like ignoring the fact that those feelings could come up for you or that you might have like some sort of trauma and just be curious like you're saying like that I think that's doing a disservice to like human beings (laughs) or like them as a human I for sure the feelings come up right and there are a lot of safeguards in place you know like I I have supervision once a week we have I have supervision with my supervisor I have supervision with my boss we have peer supervision we have clinical supervision right Mm -hmm. and I have a network of like 20 people that when stuff comes up for me or even when stuff doesn't I just call and I'm like hey can I just talk to you about this like yeah because it's it is the you know people are meant to exist in community right Mm -hmm. and so when we remove that community we remove we remove a level of support that we have yeah um, and it's and so like, it's important to like with intention exist in the community. Yeah. And it's like therapists going to see a therapist. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Like working through your own thoughts and feelings is important for anyone. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, I, there's a, a group that I want to run at the, the place where I work. Right. And I'm aware that, have I done the work? Yes, of course I have. Um, do I probably have blind spots? Yes. So like in anticipation of wanting to run a group, I decided to go back to therapy so that I can discover all the blind spots that I thought that I discovered and didn't, you know, and it's, it's hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you have them, right? Like we have blind spots and we don't know what they are. That's why they're called blind spots. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. I got an answer. Kind of related. So, um, we're talking a lot about like trauma, stress, those sorts of things. So how, and, and sitting and dealing with the pain that might come along with that, what are some of like the coping mechanisms or like how do people deal with those things that are going on with their lives? Um, whether they're like consciously aware of some of the stuff that's going on or not. Like yeah. how, how do you see people coping with those sorts of things? Oh, lots of ways, lots and lots of ways. Um, I mean, I think, so the way that I describe coping, coping skills in general, right. Um, are ones that, well, okay. This, so this is how I describe it. This is like the simple way. I wish I had a whiteboard that I could draw on, but, <laughs> but say you're feeling some type of way, some type of way that you don't like, right. And you'd like to feel some type of way that you do like, okay. All the stuff that goes in the middle that gets you from the way that you don't like to the way that you do like, those are coping skills, right. And those coping skills can either be helpful or they can be harmful, right? There's really a continuum. There's like, or skillful would be another way, right? Like there's a skillful application of coping skills and a less skillful application of them. Um, Sometimes we put things in buckets for people and we say like, this one's helpful for everyone, right? And it's not. Um, So like running, for example, right? 
running can either be used as a helpful coping skill for some people or an incredibly unhelpful coping skill for other people, right? Um, you know, reading works for some people and not others. Different types of music work for different moods. Um, but there's, there's a, there are coping skills that work well and coping skills that work less well. Mm-hmm. And is it a process of like figuring out what ones work for you or mm-hmm. like, how do you see that going for someone if they're really struggling and they feel like they're in a rut and like, they don't know how to start? Yeah. I think it's figuring out. So when I'm trying to help people figure out what coping skills work for them, I start with, what do you enjoy doing? What makes you happy? Right? So for me, um, I like listening to music. I like dancing. I like hanging out with my friends. I like eating macaroni and cheese, right? (laughs) I like doing all those things. Um, those are just fun things that Megan likes to do, right? For them to be coping skills, I have to be feeling, uh, let's say I feel sad, right? Um, and I on purpose choose to do something that makes me feel joy, right? So I feel sad. I go and hang out with my friend. Then I feel joy, right? The going and hanging out with my friend has now been used by me as a coping skill, mm-hmm. right? Um, for me, if I'm angry, um, let's see, if I'm sad, right, music is so great. If I'm angry, sometimes music also works. So there are coping skills that work for different emotions, right? Um, punching something, right, totally works for me if I'm angry. It does not really work for me if I'm feeling lonely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for some of my, <laughs> one of my kiddos in particular, Um, punching people totally works for him. Right. And so we're working on a skillful application of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So punching people for him can be super helpful and adaptive. Right. But we're learning how to shadow box because sometimes there's not access to a punching bag. Sometimes there's extra access to other humans. Right. (laughs) And so it can be less skillfully applied. Right. Whereas shadow boxing is, Help me if I'm talking about shadow boxing wrong, whereas I'm like learning how to talk about it so that I sound cool. <laughs> um, but that that is a more skillful application of the same coping skill, but used more more helpfully for him. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you used it perfectly. So yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so cool. Do you feel like coping me- or like coping skills can ever be like? a detriment like do you feel like sometimes like if we take back to the sitting with pain like do you think sometimes like people should not try to use them and to try to just like sit there and feel what they're feeling or figure out where it's coming from like do you know what I'm trying to say yeah um to a point so I don't know I don't know I almost I almost put it in like like this skillful application camp, right? So like if I, I don't know, cause there, like there can be, I'm like, I'm trying to think of like an example that will make this make sense, but. Good question, Rose. Yeah, I think like <laughs> if I'm not allowing, if I'm using a coping skill so that I don't feel feelings ever, I'm like, would that, would I even call it a coping skill? That's kind of what I'm struggling with right now, right? Because that might sound like numbing, sort of. Yeah, because you could, numbing could be a coping skill, Mm -hmm. right? I would just put that in the unhelpful coping skills box. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I think, I think people, I think as long as you're, so if I feel sad, right? And then I feel an overwhelming amount of sadness, and then I choose to use a coping skill, I'm not sure that that would be, that I would say that's harmful. Um, I would just guess that over time, what happens, let's say I was able to tolerate, if I'd gone a one to 10 scale, right? I was able to tolerate sadness at a level seven before becoming completely overwhelmed. My guess would be for someone that over time, as they got better at recognizing their feelings and like honoring their feelings, they would also be able to tolerate sadness at a level eight or nine or 10 before they needed a coping skill. And I would guess, I, I would I would just guess that over time, the ability to identify emotions would increase as would the ability to sit with them and tolerate them without the need to, to feel like I'm escaping. 
my guess would also be that if the emotions are intolerable um, towards the beginning, that I'm using more unhealthy coping skills and that over time, my ability to sit with the pain would increase as would my ability to use, to select more healthy coping skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Okay. I'm using an unho- unhealthy coping skill to escape from sadness at a level four, right? And then I use, I start using more healthy coping skills. There's going to be a gap where I'm now more sad. Mm. right wow yeah right like a like a or like a length of time is that what you mean by the gap like there's going to be a time period where you're going to be more sad or yeah like I'm like I'm not engaging so let's say let's take drinking right like like I can have a glass of wine tonight and that might be a really healthy coping skill if I have seven that's not a very healthy coping skill for me right Mm. um so let's say you know, if I'm someone who now I decide I'm, I'm actually just not going to drink anymore, right? Um, tonight, I might feel sad at a level four, right? That might be typically when I would go and get a glass of wine, right? I'm going to have to now make it, th- I'm, I'm going to choose not to have one, right? So my sadness is still at the same level. It might be, I have not alleviated my sadness. Does that make sense? So in the in the time period where I wanted to use a coping skill, chose not to use one and have to pick a new one, I'm still sad. I might be increasing sad or I might have added anxiety or anger to my sadness. That reminds me of like in an eating disorder, you're actively using like eating disorder behaviors. You're trying to um, like recover basically. And in that interim, when you're like trying to learn or trying to change your behaviors, there's like an active period where someone might be like, freaking out or not know what to do or kind of like in that moment where you're like what is even going on and then eventually you get to the other side where you have more helpful coping behaviors and you're like okay I'm good because what you've done right is you've removed a coping skill Mm -hmm. right disordered eating is a coping skill yeah um it's just one that isn't incredibly helpful for someone long term right right um yeah it's also caveat about coping skills you cannot learn them while you're in the peak of like the feeling that you don't want to have right it's why when someone's like super pissed and people like just calm down like it what like I can't freaking calm down right like if I would if I was capable of calming down right now I would have calmed down already (laughs) Um, right so like I don't teach deep breathing to people when they're pissed I teach it to them when they're calm Mm -hmm. and then we act right we act it out quite a few times before I expect that they will be able to to do it when they're at like a level 10 angry right And in fact, I don't try and get them to do it when they're at a level 10. I, I try and catch it as as like the wave of emotion goes up, right? You don't try and catch it at the peak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because right. then at that point, I mean, even with good coping mechanisms, like it still might, you might not be able to like, it might not be useful at the 10. Yep. Well, in different, different coping skills are useful at different levels. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So, you know, my guess is that for someone who you know, as in treatment for an eating disorder, they might be using disordered eating as a coping skill for all of the levels of multiple different feelings, right? Whereas, you know, for me, if I'm angry, if I'm angry at a level three, I use a different coping skill than if I'm angry at a level seven, right? Mm -hmm. And that's different from a level 7.5. You know, like if I feel like I'm going to punch someone, I need a different coping skill from when my heart just starts beating fast or my chest gets red, right? Mm -hmm. It also reminds me of like the stages of change type thing where you like teach someone about it kind of when they're, you know, just plain Jane, they're good to go. Like you teach someone the deep breathing when they're, you know, not at a level 10, when they're at a level zero. And then, you know, the level 10 comes and maybe like they don't even think about it that time. Then the next time they think about, oh, okay, maybe I could try that. That might help. But they like are not able to yet. And then a couple of times down the road, they're like, okay, I remember that deep breathing. We practiced this. Maybe I'll try this. And then they try and it doesn't work. And then the next time they try it and they're like, okay, I think that might've helped. And then it's just like, it's almost practice and they have to like get there to when it actually becomes like accessible in the height of the moment. Yep. My, some of my proudest moments are when I am working with a client and they start getting like some type of big feelings and they without realizing it then take a deep breath themselves and then just continue and like I know three months before right I had to like 
interrupt them two sentences before and be like, hey, in a second, we're going to take a deep breath. And then they get really mad at me because like deep breathing, deep breathing stupid, right? And and now they're doing it unprompted by themselves and don't, it, it's integrated into how they take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. That's awesome. That'd be so cool to witness. It's so cool. It's like <laughs> yeah. the most wonderful thing in the entire world. <laughs> Do you think like, I was listening to another podcast and they were kind of talking about how they've noticed like themselves and I guess like other people are not picking up new coping strategies like right now because of like, coronavirus and being in quarantine and all this stress like I guess like you were just saying like when you're in the stress you're not gonna learn something new and so I wonder if like a lot of people are noticing that about themselves now yeah I'm sure I mean we've we've especially at my the where I work we've talked about COVID as like a collective uh grief experience and I think so people's people's past traumas are also getting woven in right so we're You know, the analogy that we've been using is like, it's like an earthquake happened, right? And we're like waiting for the tsunami to hit. Um, and so there's this constant state of hypervigilance, right? So if I'm, if I'm having a trauma response, the thinking part of my brain is shut off, right? And so what I, what my body is doing for me is helping keep me safe. Um, and so it's, it's selecting coping skills that have worked for me in the past, right? And some of those are healthy and some of them are not. Mm. Um, but your body is, is trying to keep you safe. And, and for most people, it's doing a damn good job, but it might, it might just be, it might not be picking ones that are healthy for you right now. It might be picking ones that kept you safe a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've learned to adapt and they don't really work for you anymore, but they worked for you sometimes. So your body's like, yeah, that one, let's do that one. Right. So in that situation, how do you like stay kind to yourself, even if you know that what you're doing maybe isn't the best thing for yourself right now? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's it's having, recognizing that that's kind of what's happening and being able to honor that, right? Which I think, I think requires some, it requires a lot of curiosity. And you know, we've talked about curiosity and I feel like that's like a fun thing that therapists say that people are like, what is that? Like, how do I, but like, it really does, right. It really works. Um, just staying patient with yourself and then having a lot of self-compassion. Um, and, and self-compassion, I think is it's, I, I mean, honestly, every time I talk about self-compassion, I go and I Google self-compassion cause I feel like I learn new things about it every single time. Um, and it's hard, you know, and it, and it might, it might, people might be drawn to different aspects of self-compassion. Um, for me, the idea of um, like community and how we're all, we're all, it is hard for everyone right now, um, right? It's not, it's not just hard for me. Um, it's hard for me and it's hard for you and it's hard for this other person, I think allows me to have a little bit more patience and kindness for myself, right? It's not, it's not saying it's totally fine that I am using this coping skill that's actually unhelpful for me, right? It's not saying that that's okay. It's just saying life is hard right now. And it's also hard for me and it is okay that it is hard for me. Um, and it's, it's giving yourself like ex- and extending to yourself that same compassion that you might extend to your best friend. Um, and then, and also like, like as you move away from using that less helpful coping skill um, and with intention, choose some new ones that you know work better for yourself. You have compassion for yourself in that process because that's also really hard, right? Um, and it's giving space to recognize like, thanks body, right? Like you were trying so hard to keep me safe um, and having some patience for yourself in the process when you shift back to things that you know actually keep you safe now. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like understanding and not beating yourself up about yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Hard. Easier said than done, for sure. It is. Um, for sure. But yeah, it's someone once I, I think it was like a coach that I had one time said, and it's not practice makes perfect. They used to say practice makes permanent. And I like that a lot better because I think it's like we don't, you get, you get better at your coping, like your, the coping skills that you'd like to use, you get better at them by just using them. Um, and you get better at having compassion for yourself and holding space for additional kindness by trying to do it. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, self-compassion I think is a hard thing. Cause it's, it's not like a thing that you can be like today I've done it, you know, and now I'm good at it for the rest of my life. Right. It's not like learning how to bake banana bread. Like you can, 
you can make a perfect one one day and then make a terrible one the next day, right? Like it's the same recipe doesn't always work with self-compassion. Yeah. Again, I guess it probably does because they research it, but it feels harder than that. Rose, yeah. I've been counting in my head and I think she has taken the analogy uh, queen of the episode. <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. Every time I look at you and uh, I'm like, yes. <laughs> There's another one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, that was really good, Megan. Yeah, I think you're probably going to help a lot of people with that, um, like the idea of self-compassion, because I think that sometimes gets lumped into like the same thing as like self-care, like, oh, self, I'm going to be so compassionate to myself and people don't necessarily understand what that really looks like or how to cultivate that. And I know that is helpful for me too, just in in thinking about what self-compassion actually means. So thank you for that. I do look at for anyone who is like, they still feel confused. What do I do? Um, Kristen Neff, mm. her website is just, that's a place that like personally I go. Um, there is a lot of, she, the way that she lays it out is helpful for my brain because she has a com- self-compassion is this self-compassion is not that. Mm. And for me, sometimes I need to see what it is not to be able to let some of those things go. So sometimes I, I Google like Kristen Neff, self-compassion. And then I'm like, oh yeah, duh. Like, no wonder I don't feel like, I feel kind of weird. Like I've been doing it like this and like that doesn't work right like that's what society says we're supposed to do mm-hmm. um but that like starts the same the shame cycle for me so like let me just go over here and do this piece of it which like is when me and my friends are existing in community well together and I feel good right mm-hmm. I like that yeah cool well um does anyone have do y'all have any other like last parting thoughts on that or any other things that we've talked about before we introduce our doggy bag segment <laughs> i don't think we've done one in a couple episodes actually so you we're bringing it back i know i'm excited for this <laughs> um okay well then we might just do it should we just do it I think okay so. well i just like to say that this one is also being sponsored by megan's dog ruger who is a very incredibly <laughs> cute weimreiner um <laughs> and he deserves a mention so Thank you, Ruger, for sponsoring this segment. <laughs> and Violet, Rose's dog. Okay, so this doggy bag segment, uh, Megan, we want to hand it off to you. Um, I think you have kind of a really cool anecdote that you experienced um, in your own work that kind of relates to some things that Rose and I are interested in also. So go ahead. So I am obsessed with this story, um, mostly because I had a question. I know I talk about my interns a lot. I think they're so cool. Um one of my interns had asked me, how do like, how do we introduce conversations about intuitive eating or like healthy body, whatever, whatever. I don't know. Is that an appropriate way to talk about it? I'm not body sure. image. Body image. Yeah. I was just like, but like uh, all things bodies, um, into conversations with kids that we're working with. Um, I work primarily with kids and adolescents. Um, but so this came up when, with one of my groups and I immediately went back to her and I was like, Oh, like this, right? Like it doesn't have to be the thing that someone's coming in for. Um, but when it comes up, you honor that part of the conversation. So I have, or I guess had that group is no longer running, but had a group with, um, young girls, um, elementary, young elementary age. The group was focused on trauma, big range of traumas, um, none of which involved, you know, things around eating. Um, but in one of the groups, um, I had been eating a salad. So like, just to set the context, right. This was like second lunch for me. I'd had like two breakfasts and a snack and then like a lunch. And this salad was like my second lunch. Cause it was like two 30. And typically by then I'm on second lunch. <laughs> so I'm eating a salad. I had also brought Girl Scout cookies for our group because it was like that time of the year. And I think Girl Scout cookies are so good. But I had done the math in my head and realized that if each girl had two cookies, which is what like one of the girls had already taken two cookies, then there would be enough for everyone except none left for me. And so one of the girls offered me one before someone else had had some. And so I said, no, no, thank you. I want you guys like I want you all to have them today. Um, And what I was doing in my own brain was allowing space so that each of the girls could have the same amount of cookies and they all felt like they got to have them. But the visual of what happened was that I was eating a salad and turned down some cookies, right? So like being aware that even though sometimes, like, I guess that's my first thing is like, sometimes what you intend to happen doesn't, isn't what happens, right? Like they didn't know that I had had 
you know, two breakfasts and a snack and a lunch already, right? They see I'm eating a salad and I said, no, thank you to some cookies, Mm -hmm. even though I brought them, right? So what one of the girls says um, is, Miss Megan, do you eat junk food, right? So now in her mind, she's put cookies and in junk food together and thinks Miss Megan does not eat those. Um, And so my first question to her was, well, what do you mean by junk food, right? Um, and so she, her response was like, well, you know, like fast food or cookies and cake and chips and stuff like that. Um, and so I said, you know, well, yeah, I mean, if I, if I want some junk food, then I, then I eat some junk food. Right. And so I'm, I'm trying to, we can have a whole debate about whether or not those things are junk food or not, or what the best way to label them is. Right. I'm trying to use her language. Like, yes, I do. Yes, of course I eat junk food. Like if I want some, then I eat some. And so her next question is, well, how do you decide to eat it or not? And so at that point, right, like I can be like, well, actually, like that's not the topic of our therapy today. Like we're supposed to do group like that. Right. But of course, I'm good. Like I stop and answer the question because we got to You got to stop and answer the question. Um, and so I, I told her like, well, you know, I try really hard to to listen to my body and figure out what I you know, what I want. And so if I want, you know, whatever the thing is, if it's, if I want some French fries or if I want a cookie or a cake, then I eat it. And if I want something different, then I go and eat the something different. And sometimes I want both. And so then I eat both. Um, And so she kind of like sat there for a second and was like, okay. And then immediately asked me after that, well, how much is too much? Right. And so that to me, in my mind at that point was not a question that I needed to answer. Right. Because she actually has the answer to that herself. Um, and so I open it up to the group and say, well, what do you guys think? I mean, how do you know, like, how do you know when too much is too much? And so within the group, right. And these are like seven to 10 year olds. Um, they come up with answers like, well, you know, sometimes my stomach hurts. So I know that I've eaten too much, or sometimes I'm still hungry, or sometimes I don't know. And I find out later, or sometimes you know, they, they, there's a range of different answers, all of which are beautiful and incredible and involve like listening to your body and honoring your requests and sometimes getting it wrong and having compassion for yourself when you, you know, quote unquote, get it wrong. Um, and so, the, I mean, th- that whole conversation took like five minutes um, and was great and beautiful and wonderful. And within that group, we had girls who had clearly been messaged harmful messages about food and their body. Um, and girls who were young enough that they, they had heard those things or seen all of the posters or messages that were inundated with, but hadn't yet taken it on for themselves. And so to be able to have that conversation for them, it was, it was like a unlearning of some of the unhealthy things and then a solidifying for some of the other, and it's, it's, it's such a small conversation, right? But if each of the people in their life stop and every time they ask a question, take the time to have those conversations, um, and I don't know if I said all the right things, right? Like I tried really hard and I probably messed some of it up. And also I tried my best and I honored where they were at. Um, and so that's, that's my Ruger sponsored doggy bag. It's just, if when people ask questions, take time to answer them. Um, and you don't have to know what the right thing to say is, and you probably won't. And then later on, I mean, I called Linda like immediately after that conversation I was like, okay, I'm so excited about this. And also, can you give me some coaching in case I said something and I could have said it better. Right. And so it's, <laughs> it's having the conversation and then engaging in conversations about it after in case there's something that you could have like tweaked or changed that might've benefited someone even more, you know, or like could benefit them differently later on. So that's me. Rose, what do you think about that? I don't know. I'm smiling because that was like, I love that you did that. And I love that they, like, she asked you those questions and that just like shows that with the whole intuitive eating thing, you're born like your body wants to listen to itself. Like, like all their answers were just so innocent. And like, you know, like I said, I know you said that some had had those messages already and you could see it within their answers, but it's just like a beautiful thing that like, yeah, I don't know, our bodies, like we want to eat what we want to eat, like as much as we want and we can listen to ourselves. And if mm-hmm. we don't, like we can be kind. Like, Well, and I think it's, it's hard sometimes, right? Especially like I work with a lot of a lot of trauma survivors, right? And one of the ways, I mean, talking about coping skills, right? One of the ways that we sometimes cope with having experienced trauma is not being in our body, right? And so sometimes when we talk about intuitive eating, it's not, that's not, that does not feel accessible for people. Um, and so it can be helpful 
just to know that that is a possibility, right? Like if I'm someone who, you know, dissociation is like a, a coping skill that I use to keep myself safe. It might be, it, it, that might, intuitive eating might not be accessible to me right now, but it could be helpful to know that at some point, right, that would be something that might be helpful for me. Mm. Or at some point I could, man, like, wouldn't it be cool if I could honor my body in such a way that I could listen to it, even about what, what it wanted for food, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, anything for like young minds, right? To They might have access to that and maybe they don't for various reasons, but um, to know that it's a possibility and that it, that it can be done and that it's okay to listen to your body, I think it's a, it's a powerful message to learn and to like, it, it's a way to hold hope that I think some, sometimes people aren't aware that they are allowed to have access to or could be given access to that. Rose, do you yeah. see why I think she should be an eating disorder therapist? <laughs> yeah, you'd be an amazing eating disorder therapist. <laughs> we could have our own little, like, practice. They could see you. They could see me or Linda. It would be great. No, I'll just, I'll just, I'll be like, oh my, I'll do what I do now. Because I've got a couple of friends that, like, work specifically with clients who have eating disorders. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I actually know someone who's so phenomenal. And then I <laughs> give them your business card. I have people to refer to that you, like, trust and love and it just, it like also that feels really good. Yeah, that's true. To be like, don't worry, go talk to this person. They're safe and incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, all of that that we just talked about was amazing. And I learned a lot. Rose, you were smiling. I learned a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I yeah, we really appreciate you coming on and we thoroughly enjoyed that. And thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Someday soon we'll get to hang out in person. In person. It's going to happen. Yes, absolutely. But until then, we'll be compassionate and all of the things. Absolutely. All of the things. Cool. Anything, any last things, Rose or Megan? I'm good. Yeah. Be kind to yourselves, people. Say it again. I said be kind to yourselves, people. Yeah. And just smile at people extra. You can stay six feet away and smile. But nowadays we got to smile, like Tyra Banks says, because we got masks on. Yeah, you do. Smile with your eyes. You can do it. Unless you don't feel like smiling. And then just soak in other people's smiles. That's okay, too. Deal. <laughs> I think that that's a perfect way to end. Thank you, Megan. And uh, we, Rose and I, will see you in two weeks, hopefully, <laughs> for episode 12. Right? Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.